chapter 8, I'll give you a moment to turn there as we land in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. As you're turning there, let me tell you this. Arguably, the most popular daytime television game show is The Price is Right. The Price is Right. I mean, there is the Family Feud and the Wheel of Fortune, but you know, if you watch those shows, it's mostly in the evening. Maybe after the evening news, like at 6.30, when you begin to watch those two particular game shows. And they're quite popular as well. But success they've had in The Price is Right is almost unparalleled. It started back in 1956, and it had a little bit of a dismal start back in those days. In 1972, they got Bob Barker to host The Price is Right, and it seemed to just take off. And Bob Barker was the host of The Price is Right for many, many years. In fact, all the way until 2007, where Drew Carey became the host, and still is today. Now, if you know The Price is Right, if you've seen any episode, you know that they always start with an announcement. They look upon the audience, and they say someone's name, and they say, come on down. They go to the very front, and there's four places they're stationed, right? And they get a chance to see something that comes out initially, and they get a chance to bid on it, right? And the highest bidder, without going over, gets a chance to advance to the stage and play yet another game for another prize. And it goes on and on in that fashion until the very end where they have the showcase showdown. In the showcase showdown, there's two contestants who have made it that far that get a chance to play against each other. And they get a chance to bid and to look upon the extravagant cars, dream vacations, and much more. The whole entirety of the show, with that kind of thing happening, appeared, I mean, appealed to many different people. People flocked to go still yet to The Price is Right, and it still makes it one of the most popular games shows on daytime television. But here's the thing. When it comes to accepting Jesus Christ, or when it comes to trying to find our way into eternity, Fortunately or unfortunately, no matter how you may look at it, it's not like the popular game show. You cannot bid or win the prize to eternity of the kingdom of heaven to see, to see Jesus. That's not how it works. I mean, so someone would ask them, well, how then, how then does someone win the eternal prize to be the kingdom of heaven? It's almost too simple. As she'll explain to the children, you simply must accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Or, as we told our kids during vacation Bible school, just make Jesus your sponsor. It's just that easy. And then after you've made that life-changing decision to accept Jesus as your sponsor, or you've made Jesus your Lord and Savior, your decision should change your entire life and should become evident to others. In essence, you become a disciple, a follower of Jesus. So how can we become a disciple, or what does a disciple look like? Well, the text today we look at in Mark chapter 8 is going to lead us into how we can better understand, in case it's vague, or in case it's ambiguous in some way, or in case we don't understand it, today's text kind of clears it up a bit for us and how we should be living and how we should take our lives to follow Jesus as being a proper disciple, a follower, a believer, a Christian. So stand with me this morning as we do to simply honor the reading of the word. We're in Mark chapter 8. By the way, it is similarly written in all the Gospels, also in Matthew, 
Luke, and John, but we're looking to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look in verses 34 through 38, only five verses for consideration and reading today. Here's what the Gospel of Mark is telling us, starting in chapter 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of of his Father with the holy angels. Father, Lord, we thank you for this reading today and for this text and how we can take a portion of the Gospel of Mark and look upon it to see how we can be a better disciple, how we can be a better follower, Lord, a, a Christian into the world we're living in today and truly be a light in the darkness that we're living in. So Lord, let us take these words today that be said here. I pray they're not my words, Lord, but the words you want us to hear today and see how they apply to our lives and how they can be that light. Let us be thankful, Lord, for what we shall learn, but also how we shall apply this text in our life today. We love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Before we dig into application, let's look further into the chapter, because if you take this entire chapter, it is, we read the, really the chapter towards the ending of it. I mean, the last five verses we read actually ends the chapter and again in the chapter nine. So let's look at the, the context and set some things before we actually do the application, because Mark chapter eight is really full of significant events. In the beginning of Mark chapter eight, in the first 13 verses, you have the feeding of the 4,000 which is a significant event in all the lives of the disciples and the people who received the miraculous feeding. Later on, you get the healing of the blind man of Bethsaida. And then you get into the section right before we read it in, in verses 27 through 30, where you get Peter's confession of Christ. In which is the, the occasion is that Jesus asked Peter, point blankly, who do people say that I am? Well, Peter responds with some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But then Jesus again turns to Peter, directly adding in verse 29, and says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And if you know the verse as well, you know that Peter replies with, well, you are the Christ. And I refer back to that moment because that's a highly significant moment, not only for Peter, but for all the disciples together, I mean, now they have finally recognized Jesus being the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so as they realize that as Mark is making his way through the gospel here in chapter 8, as they now make that realization, it leads now into a passage that goes into chapter 9 as well, that's actually titled in my Bible, Jesus Foretells His Death and Resurrection, but it could be appropriately labeled simply as Jesus Predicts His Death which then also makes the featured text as portion of that particular section. But backing up just a little bit before we jump back into the text we looked at today and then read, 
Let's back up just a little bit because it helps us to go back from verse 31 through verse 33 and see what's happened now as Jesus is foretelling about his death and resurrection. Let us look upon those verses because Peter, the visible spokesman, I mean, of all the twelve, Peter's the one who's typically the spokesman of the group. And, and I, I like that about Peter. I mean, someone has to step up to be the leader, and it seems to be him. I mean, he, he kind of speaks for all 12 when he's getting ready to speak. Not always is the occasion, yeah. But he speaks a lot of times for all of his brothers. And, and he's the one who just now correctly identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. And all the disciples together now have realized this. But now Peter in verses 31 through 33, he's going to speak up once again, and remarkably, as you look at the text, he's going to rebuke Jesus. Verse 31, they just realized that he's the Christ. He just said this. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And then Peter took him aside, and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciple, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And I go back to that. It was right before we began our reading, verse 34. But I go back to it because the exchange between Peter and Jesus is a critical moment. I mean, not only does it offer the disciples the future of Jesus' death and resurrection, it, it foretells that. But notice how it seems to stun them. I mean, like shocked. And it's evident that with the rebuke of Peter, that they are shocked. When they just heard their master, the one they've been following, is going to he's foretelling his death. And he also tells about the resurrection. I don't know if they get it all. But it stuns them, it, it kind of shocks them. N.T. Wright, who is a, a, an England scholar, he uses an analogy, really, of a soccer team. Right now, the World Cup's going. I don't know if you like the World Cup or not. I like to watch the World Cup soccer. And, and by the way, England is in the same division as USA. That's off the subject, of course. But N.T. Wright is an English scholar, so he's using an analogy, really, of a, of a soccer team when he says that you might as well have a football captain Football is not American football to an Englander, right? To a British person, it's soccer. So he's saying that you might as well have a football captain, a soccer captain, if you will, tell the team that he was intending to let the opposition score 10 goals right away. This wasn't what Peter and the rest had in mind. They may not have thought of Jesus as a military leader, but they certainly did not think of him going straight to his death. It certainly shocks them when he begins to tell them about what the future holds for him and his death and resurrection. It is shocking to them. And we can discern that really from the text. And I, and I say that to lead into this next portion that we're about to get into them because as shocking as it may have been for them now to learn about the imminent future death of their master, it leads to a very important moment of teaching which is the cost of following, or the cost of being a disciple. And perhaps the moment of teaching is evident in the text because Jesus draws all the people close. It's not just his disciples with him right now. 
I mean, he's got all the people that follow him all around. He draws them all close. In verse 34, he basically said to them, as all the people want to follow Jesus, they want to be disciples, so they speak. But he says unto all of them, you want to follow me? I'm glad you want to follow me. Good. But you better understand the cost. That's paraphrasing, of course, some things he said to them. But he says, you want to follow me? That's great. I want all the followers I can possibly receive. But you better understand the cost before you fully decide to follow. Now, a bit of a side note here is that some people look upon that, the way I paraphrase that, and the way maybe Jesus is speaking to his disciples in the crowd here, and they say, that's a bit brash or aggressive, and maybe even labeled a little bit as arrogant. But to those critics, Warren Morsby says this, Jesus summoned the people and taught them what he taught his own disciples. There's a price to pay for true discipleship. He knew that the crowds were following him only because of the miracles and that most of the people were unwilling to pay the price to become true disciples. Let me repeat the last section of Worsby's comment. That Jesus knew the crowds were following him only because of the miracles. And now listen, and that most of the people were unwilling to pay the price to become true disciples. Most people were unwilling to pay the price, whatever it was, they were unwilling to really become true disciples. Now think about that. As you think about that, it doesn't seem like much has changed in the couple thousand years. People today still casually follow Jesus, unwilling to pay the price to become true disciples. Don't we see that? I mean, an application of thought is, I mean, do people really understand what it costs to follow Jesus? I mean, just observations, I, I think sometimes that we, I mean, I, I include myself in this deal. I mean, I think that sometimes we don't fully understand it. I think at times we are guilty of casually following Jesus. Picking and choosing. We look through the text. We pick and choose which verses apply to us and say, well, those other verses apply to someone else, not me. And sometimes we hear message and we say, well, I wish that Jer uh, <laughs> that Mary or Jane or Bob or somebody was here to hear that, thinking it didn't apply to me. It, it applied to them. And if we tend to really think that only those particular messages or thoughts or scripture applies to someone else, not all of us, then we really not actually understood what it cost to be a disciple. Because no matter who we are, man or woman, old or young, rich or poor, black or white, it doesn't matter. The cost is the same for each and every one of us. In fact, going back to the introduction that we had earlier, the price is right. Let us imagine now that we're among the crowd, that we're in the crowd, okay? And, and, and as we're in the crowd, the price is right. Jesus is calling you down. He's calling you down to be the next contestant, the next person to possibly be his disciple. And, and we can almost do that because verse 34, as you go back to it, I mean, he, he called the crowd of people unto him. So put yourself in the text. Put yourself at the scene. 
you're the next contestant. You're the next person going to come all the way close to Jesus. You're coming close to him and coming into his presence. And as you come close to him, you're the, you're the next contestant. You come close to him. He says, remarkably, he says, you come to him. He says, remarkably, hey, if you want to follow me, listen. If anyone were to come to follow me, after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Of course, it's written in the masculine, but it applies to all of us. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. It's an interesting word choice, don't you think? If you, if you draw close to Jesus, this is what he's beginning to tell you about what you must do to be a true disciple. Listen to the words again. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, I, I recognize it's probably not the first time you've heard these words. I mean, you probably have heard this text before. You've probably read through it yourself. But let's suppose for a moment, this is the first time you've ever heard these words. The first time you ever heard Jesus say, you want to come after me? You want to come with me? Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Now, listen, if that's the first time you've ever heard that, you're like dumbfounded. I mean, what on earth does that mean? And maybe you've heard it countless times and you're still dumbfounded about what it means. So let us ask the question, then, what does it mean? When, when Jesus says, you want to come after me, you want to follow me, good. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. I mean, what does that mean exactly? What does it mean to deny self and to take up that cross and to follow? I mean, to some it needs more definition. To some people it's just too ambiguous. So what does it mean? To explain, then let's go back to the fact that Jesus called the people to him. The fact that he has to call the people to him could mean, possibly, that people were standing a distance away. How far? We don't really know. And, and perhaps the distance is insignificant. But what may be important, is, and maybe more significant then, is the fact that people have been standing afar from Jesus for far too long. They stand at a distance for him way too long, keeping their distance from Jesus. Especially maybe today, people keep their distance from Jesus. And we can ask why. Why would it be then that maybe today in our society, our culture, we have a lot of advanced technology, a lot of things available to us. Why would people today stand afar, a distance away from Jesus? And one possible answer is they don't like his message. You say, what message is that? Well, it could be simple as John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, but no one, comes to the Father except through me. And to proclaim Jesus is the only way is not popular teaching today. The modern day teaching and thought really is that there's many ways you can get to the kingdom of heaven. But the fact is, there's only one way. It is Jesus and only Jesus. So people don't like that message. But it's not just that message. Go back to the text again, look at verse 34. We, we're dissecting that particular verse. I mean, and you see another unpopular message that Jesus is sending the crowd and telling the people, as the text states, is that fact you must deny yourself. 
Denying self in the world today is not popular. We live in a self-absorbed society. It's all about me, 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 me. The me, myself, and I syndrome is what we're living in. Maybe the increase in selfies is maybe making the evidence enough. We have tons of people always taking selfies of a particular moment in their life, plastering it all over Facebook, proudly displaying it about something they did or some special occasion about me, 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 me. We live in a self-absorbed society. But it's not just selfies. We have advertisers who capture the essence of satisfying self when they tell us that we can have it our own way. Isn't that Burger King? You ever go to Burger King? Can you get to have it your own way? Yeah. Or not to be outdone, there are those others who advertise that you deserve a break today at where? McDonald's. We, we, we live in a society that tells us we can have things our exact way that we want it. Specialized just for me and you. Our individual self. So we tend to look after ourselves and then shun anyone else. So, <laughs> so we're far in our society today from denying self. But in Jesus' test to be a true disciple, you must deny self. So, deny, so notably, denying yourself is not, let's just make sure we understand, denying yourself is not a call of self-rejection or self-hatred. That would be more lines of maybe self-denial, but rather denying self is aligning yourself with the desires of God, setting aside your personal rights to live for the glory of God. I mean, denying self or certain activities is what we're talking about. And when, when, it, when it comes to denying self or certain activities, parents know that quite well. It's something that parents learn very early in their life once they have children. I mean, some of the activities parents may have done before they have children are sacrificed once the children are born, right? I mean, how many has your child ever thought that as an adult, as a parent, that you were boring? That you have no fun in life? I mean, children understand that we make sacrifices for them once they're born. And they were, we were not boring. I mean, we started being boring the day they were, they were, we started being boring the day they were born. Because we started sacrificing certain things we used to have fun to do. Or, or maybe they just, we ceased certain activities for their development. For the maturity. I mean, in essence, we surrendered ourselves completely to raising our children. So they think we're boring when we're not. But it should be similar to with Jesus. I mean, we must surrender ourselves completely to God. And realize that if we want to live our life as a disciple, if we're willing to surrender our activities for our children, can't we do the same thing for Jesus? Can't we make sacrifices and deny self and surrender to him and accept his will and his way? If we can do that for our children, we can surely do it for Jesus. So we need to deny self. 
But it's not just if you go back to the verse 34. Again, he's not just saying deny self is all it takes to become a true disciple. He's also saying here to take up the cross. Some translations say shoulder the cross. Either way, you want to say it. Take up the cross, shoulder the cross. We must remember that the death on the cross for anyone at that day and time, possibly even in today, is still an execution. It's a horrible death. It's a funny thing about cross in modern day. We don't see really the cross today as death. We see the cross more today as life. In our house in Princeton, we have not one, not two. It's in our kitchen and in our dining room, kind of together on the wall. Not three, not four, not five. I'm talking about how many crosses we have. You with me? We have 22. 22. Now, most of those are just you know crosses and have some scripture on them, some things like that. But 22? I mean, two of them actually have pictures of her grandchildren. I'm not sure what that means in the cross. But 22 crosses on the wall between our kitchen and our dining room. And, and we, you know, Sheila does that because that's how we connect to our Savior. We connect to our Savior, the cross. But the cross in the day Jesus died would have never, never been proudly displayed on the wall because it meant death, not life, and a particularly painful death. I mean, the one executed had to carry the cross beam that crossed through the execution grounds. I mean, a prisoner would be forced to carry his cross as a form of submission to Roman's government. So obviously the condemned did not go voluntarily. So it seemed unfitting that anyone would voluntarily want to take up the cross. So then basically now Jesus then, knowing this, used the image of carrying a cross to illustrate the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate submission required of a follower. Notice how it seems to be denying yourself one requirement, but Taking up the cross seems to go even further because it was something that nobody wanted to do in that day. I don't know if they had cameras and selfies. No, they didn't back in that day. But to deny self back in that day probably wasn't as difficult as it is today. But to take up that cross and carry it as they seen people do upon their execution, that was difficult. Jesus knew that those who had drawn close to him we're hearing this message and we'll be able to visually know the meaning of shouldering the cross. I mean, to follow him meant complete submission and humbling yourself to carry that cross. They knew that. But advancing today, we don't pick up on that as well. Because the cross means something different for us as it did back then. So today, do we do we actually pick up the cross? Do we actually shoulder the cross? I, I say we don't because we don't understand what it means. So then what are our crosses? I mean, how can we possibly connect this condition to being a disciple for Jesus? Scholar Kent Hughes has an answer. He says, what are our crosses? 
They're not simply trials or hardships. He says, it is typical to think of a nutty boss or an unfair teacher or a bossy mother-in-law as our cross. But they are not. Neither can we properly call an illness or a handicap a cross. A cross comes specifically walking in Christ's steps, embracing his life. What Kent Hughes is saying is a cross comes from embracing the narrow way of how we get to see Jesus. I mean, it's accepting Jesus fully as a God. I mean, as a son of God. I mean, where he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's completely embracing that and sharing that with others. And receiving disdain from that when you do share that with others. He says the cross is living out your business and sexual ethics in a world today where that means nothing. Where cheating is common. The cross is embracing weakness instead of power. The cross is extending oneself in difficult circumstances that you may live in just to, for the sake of the gospel. So what he's saying is, our crosses come from our dedication to Christ. Difficulties are not an indication of cross-bearing. Difficulties for Christ's sake, however, are. So bearing the cross in the modern day comes in the form of standing up for Christ in which you're mocked and excluded from certain activities at work or school, and then just ridiculed, mocked for all these different things. That's the form of cross we must bear. So are you experiencing these things? Are you denying self? Are you shouldering the cross? Are you willing to submit to his will? Are you denying yourself, putting others first, submitting and humbling yourself? That's what we must ask ourselves. Are we doing this? Are, are we living the life of a true disciple? Denying ourselves, putting others first, and submitting and humbling ourselves. Are we doing this? As you contemplate the question and provide the answer for yourself, let me ask you, have you ever noticed that there's one facet of life in which we do deny self? There is times we put others first. There is times we submit humbly in one particular facet of life. You know what it is? It's real, genuine love. I'm talking about real, sincere, genuine love. Like your first love. When you first found Mr. or Mrs. Wright, the person sitting to your left or to your right, when you first found that person, you would do anything to spend time with them. I mean, you long to be with them. To just be with them every waking minute if possible. So much so that you would deny yourself certain activities, certain things, just to be with the one you love. Your new love of life. Often you make sacrifices just to spend time with them. And maybe today you still do. I'll take Sheila for an example. Sheila will go to races with me because she cares less about them. Listen, during the summertime, I had some vacation days I had to burn. 
I've been wanting to go to Ohio Sprint Week for a long time. And I said something about going to Ohio and spend a few days and going to some sprint car races. Sheila didn't object. She loved me so much, she only went with me. So sometimes it's those kind of things. I mean, when you have that first, when you really truly love somebody, you make those sacrifices. You you go hunting now. She does that. Or you watch football and things like that. So she does those things. Now, on the other hand, there's some things that I do that must also make sacrifices. Like, for example, when we first got married, I could not stand Hallmark movies. Sheila liked them lifetime Hallmark movies. And, and I was sacrificed to spend some hours watching the Hallmark movie. Now, I must admit, today I love them. I watch them more often now than she does. Or shopping. Fortunately for me, Sheila don't like to shop that much, so I, I get pretty good on that one. I mean, but I was sacrificed. If she wanted to go shopping, I'll sacrifice anything I'm doing to go shopping for her. But here's the thing that really would show how much you sacrifice and how much I truly love her. Because as Sheila, I can't stand puzzles. Okay? An ideal puzzle for me has two pieces. As easy as done. Yeah. If I want a big challenge, it'll have three pieces. Sheila likes to look at a 500-piece puzzle. I think, are you kidding me? But I would take the time to sacrifice other activities because I love her so much to actually be with her to make a puzzle. No, we're not doing one this afternoon. But we do that. There's one facet of life that we make sacrifices. We deny self. And we put others first. And it's real, genuine love. And we do that for the person that's special to us because it's a nice trade-off. Now, think of that then and think of the sacrifice that Jesus made. Jesus denied himself completely. He shouldered that that cross willingly, submissively putting himself in the Father's will Humbly taking our sin when he had absolutely no sin. He took the humiliation of death on a cross. We don't think about that being an execution, but it really was. He took the humiliation of death on the cross. Showing forever then, as it says in John 15, 13, the greater love have no one than this, than a man be willing to lay down his life for his friend. That's what it takes to be a disciple, to deny self, to shoulder that cross, to put others first. You know, going back to the comment about as a parent, we seem to be boring to our children and seem to have no more pleasures. But, I mean, the question maybe we ask ourselves, as we live our lives as adults, we we still have certain pleasures in life that we begin to receive and that we want to enjoy. And we have some benefits from a short time of a good time having those particular pleasures. We're not boring people. Although our children think we're not boring, we still are enjoying certain pleasures in life. But we shouldn't feel guilty about that. Because in, in thinking about denying self, going back to the fact of denying self, Jesus is not saying that he wants you to have no fun or no pleasures in life. 
but rather he is making abundantly clear that the price of following him, the price of being a Christian, more than just saying the word, I'm a Christian, requires sacrifice from yourself. Is that denying self and lining yourself completely with him, especially your values, your beliefs, your thoughts and desires. That's a good place for all of us to start. If we really want to line ourselves up with him, it should be in our values, beliefs, thoughts, and desires. That's how we become a disciple. Lining up with Jesus, lining up with God, and, and submit ourselves completely to his will. Put in him first, others second, or in ourselves distantly third. That's what he's telling us, and it's how we dissect verse 34. But it's not just verse 34. He has in his discussion with disciples in the crowd they draw close. There's also verse 35, which we go to now in transition before we run out of time, because verse 35 is kind of where the rubber meets the road. Verse 35 says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. Which seems to be confusing to a lot of people because it seems to have more questions when they entertain for a moment. Like, can you save your own life? Or do you have even such an ability? I mean, do you really think you control your own destiny? Do you have such power? Because if you think you can save yourself and you think you control your own de destiny, you must be living in a fantasy land. Most of you know my granddaughter, Anna, who is you know, in fifth grade now. When she was much younger, Anna loved to play with dolls. I mean, she had like two dozen dolls and Barbies and stuff in her bedroom at her house. And, and, and when she would set them all up and she'd have her little playhouse there and she began to live in her little fantasy world, and she had everything her dolls would need. I mean, she would pretend to give them some food, some tea, and different things, and she would dress them in clothes, and, and she would just take care of them every possible way. And she has all these dolls in her play in her, in her playhouse in her room, and, and, and well, she didn't think of it this way, but for all intents and purposes, Anna was kind of their god because she controlled everything for them. Their lives, she controlled their living quarters, again, what they wear. I mean, she controlled everything about them. And if you take that analogy one step further, she was actually the only person that could save them. Because not one of them could save themselves. None of her dolls possessed the ability to save themselves. But equating that back to our lives, we have no ability to save ourselves. I mean, only Jesus saves. And to come to recognize that we cannot save ourselves, or not anyone for that matter, what Jesus is saying in verse 35 is this, that we should be willing to lose our life for the sake of the good news, not because our life is useless, but because nothing, not even life itself, can be compared to what we gain with Christ. Let me say it again. Verse 35 is essentially saying that we should be willing to lose our life for the sake of the good news. Not because our life is useless, but because nothing, not even life itself, 
can compare to what we gain with Christ. Simply, Jesus wants us to choose to follow him rather than lead a life of sin and self-satisfaction. He wants us to stop trying to control our own destiny and just let him direct us. I mean, isn't that what we're supposed to do as disciples to truly follow him? Not to pick and choose our own destiny, our own steps. We should follow him. Isn't that what a disciple is, is a follower? Are we followers? Are we disciples? Are we Christians? Or is just the word applying to us as a Christian? The passage is trying to help us understand the cost of following Jesus. Do you understand the cost of following Jesus? Not many people do today. As evident then in our society by the lack of love, the lack of sacrifice, and total selfishness. In the text today, Jesus tells the disciples and us the true cost. The true cost is self-denying, denying self, and showing the cross. It is denial of selfish interest in living for him and for his glory. Further, it is the act of submission to him and his plan and his will. It is an act of humility, putting away any pride and just following him and his steps. It's something that we should practice, not just today as we begin to leave here hearing this message, but to every day that we live. We live as a Christian. We live as a believer. We live as a follower. We live as a disciple. And that should be evident to everybody. And it takes by denying self, submitting to his will, and shouldering that cross. Father, we thank you, Lord, today for the message that begins to point us into the right way to live as a disciple. Recognize here, Lord, today that we have many people who are followers. Lord, we have many believers here today. We have many Christians gathered here today, Lord, in your name. Lord, today we gather and look upon ourselves and examine, thinking that maybe we could do something better in our Christian lives. That maybe there's a better way we should be living as a disciple, as a follower. We thank you then for this text today that can guide us into that particular understanding and a way of life. So Lord, today I pray for all of us, myself included, that begin to consider this text and begin to contemplate what the Spirit is telling us now. There be anything we need to do today, Lord, to change anything about ourselves, to be a better disciple or to be a better follower. Let us now commit to that. Let us commit our lives completely to you, Lord, because we know you did commit your life to us. Surely we're thankful for that, Lord. But today, let us be a true disciple, a true follower. Let us make any change possible we need to make our life as a Christian completely evident to others and be that light that we talked about earlier in this dark world. Thank you for this passage today, Lord. And thank you for the sacrifice you made for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.